Hello, Girl Boss. This is your host, Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girl Boss. We have a great guest for you today. She's the founder of SW Projects, Sarah Wilson. Before we get to that, I want to tell you about the Girl Boss Rally. It's coming up this weekend. It's an incredible, incredible event. You can learn more at girlbossrally.com. We're offering new ticket tiers. So if you're real last minute and you're based in New York, you can get a $30 shopping ticket to come and browse over 20 amazing vendors. There's vintage clothing, there's tarot readings, there's ear piercings. And um, and again, go to girlbossrally.com and follow at girlbossrally to learn more. And if you want to join our future and learn more about what Girlboss is becoming in the future, go to collective.girlboss.com and request early access for this incredible new platform that we're building. And remember, if you like what you hear on today's show, go ahead, rate, review, subscribe, and tell a friend. We'll get to our chat with Sarah in just a second, but first I want to talk to you about Talkspace. Talkspace is an online therapy company that lets you message a licensed therapist from anywhere at any time. Oh my God. Saving my friends from my barrages of texts when I really wish I could just text a therapist. I've been using Talkspace and it is a lifesaver. It's really preserving my friendships. So this means that you can improve your mental health, even if you've had trouble making time for it in the past because it's so hard to drive across town and go to therapy. All you need is a computer with internet connection or the Talkspace app. And one of the other great parts of therapy and talk space is that it gives you practical everyday strategies for stress management and living a happier life. Having a therapist just provides you a designated person to talk to who's trained to listen and help you make positive changes. The Talkspace platform has over 2,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing life challenges we all face. To match with a perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to talkspace.com girlboss and use the code girlboss to get $45 off your first month. That's code girlboss and talkspace.com girlboss. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long, we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word, which was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Sarah Wilson is a journalist, entrepreneur, and digital strategist. She started her career in media working for companies such as MTV, People, The Economist, Los Angeles Magazine, and The Huffington Post. During her time at the HuffPost, she managed several sections and pioneered concepts of social-first storytelling at scale. And there was an opportunity that came up to run HuffPost Divorce, which was not a section yet. HuffPost Divorce did not exist. It was an idea that Nora Ephron had come up with. Nora and Ariana. And um, they came up with this idea. It was Nora's idea. She was going to be, you know, the editor at large. So my feeling was I will do anything that she is behind. I will work for her. I will go to the ends of the earth for her. She's such a hero. And I did. This is what led her to her time at Facebook, where she spent nearly five years running lifestyle partnerships at Facebook and Instagram. 
During this time, she developed relationships with and helped grow the brands of many of the most influential food, fashion, home, health, wellness, and travel brands in the world. She even built Instagram's game-changing fashion vertical, which created the playbook for how to win a certain market on a social platform. While there was a ton of organic, you know, um, posting in the fashion world, whether it was, you know, Metball or Fashion Week, whatever, Instagram had no presence there. Um, there was no relationships there at the time. And that was just because it wasn't a priority. I decided to change that. And I said, you know, I think Instagram can be the top platform for fashion. How do we make this happen? These days, Sarah is working on her new company, SW Projects. SW Projects crafts content strategies and unique creative ideas for brands and digital publishers. Because Sarah has deep experience on both sides of the equation, journalist and platform, she knows how to help both brands and publishers deliver killer content optimized for the ever-changing ecosystem of today's content consumer. I've been very, very lucky in that every job that I've ever jumped to, like I was the first person to do it. The job did not exist before I did it. So I'm a big believer in not only thinking to the future, you kind of got to make your own job and and that's okay. You may not know where you want to be in five years because your job may not exist yet. Today, she's here to share some of the work she's doing at SW Projects, how to use storytelling to create a memorable digital brand and strategies you can use to outsmart the Instagram algorithm. Now let's get to it. Here's my chat with Sarah Wilson. So I start every episode with the same question. Yes. You know. Oh, yeah. Okay. What was your first job? Yes. So my first job was probably, I mean, I had a few a few smaller jobs before this, but the one that, that is probably most memorable is when I was 16 and worked at a waffle barn at the Canadian National Exhibition. I'm from Toronto. So this was sort of like Canada's answer to the state fair. It was an actual barn. I had like a funny feeling that, that the boss was a little bit weird, um, but I did it anyway because I just really wanted a summer job. And I jumped in and I really quickly learned that he was underpaying us like by a lot. And I found this out because I went, just did some of my own research. This was like me in embryo, totally, a little reporter. And uh, I didn't really know what to do, but I started talking to the other employees. And I was actually fired for talking to the other employees about the fact that we were being underpaid. And so I I was actually fired for this. And um, it was my first time being fired, obviously. It was totally shocking. But then I took them to small claims court oh and God. actually won like $300. Of loss. <laughs> no, it was so ridiculous. This is my first and you. last time, hopefully, in uh, any kind of employment court. So. What did you What did you learn from that? Is there anything you've carried through your career? Yeah, probably. I mean, <laughs> being a rabble rouser is something that <laughs> it's not so bad. Like if it's part of your identity, go for it. It's it's not something I've ever employed in another job. I haven't had to. But if you feel like something's off or wrong, then, you know, you need to take action on that. Rouse the rabble. Rouse guys. the rabble. <laughs> <laughs> Prior to Facebook, Sarah worked for many years as a journalist, including a long stint at the Huffington Post. She talked about how she shifted from journalism into the social space and what made her want to make that move. So I've always had this sort of idea that um, I've been very, very lucky in that I'm, every job that I've ever jumped to, like I was the first person to do it. The job did not exist before I did it. So I'm a big believer in not only 
thinking to the future, you kind of got to make your own job. Um, and and that's okay. You may not know where you want to be in five years because your job may not exist yet. So yes, I came from traditional publishing. My whole dream as a kid was I wanted to make magazines. I wanted to run magazines. I was a t- My mom was a magazine writer. We had magazines around the house. And as a kid, I made magazines for fun. Like that's what I did in my spare time. And I really enjoyed it. And I just envisioned myself going to New York. I went to New York at age 11. And like it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I thought it was the coolest city in the world. And I wanted to be there. And so I actually just pursued that goal during college, which was in Canada and Halifax. I um, I took internships in New York. I, I worked at Teen People magazine. And I, you know, the next summer I worked at New York magazine. And I assumed that when I graduated, I would move to New York and become a, a wonderful magazine editor. And it didn't happen that way. I tried to get a job in New York for many years, like probably three or four years. It just didn't work out. I kept going down there, interviews, people would tell me to move there. It just wasn't happening. So I eventually just kind of you know, figured out that I would be back in Toronto and be trying to kind of do it there. And so I got into the magazine business there. And it actually ended up being a totally amazing move because I was kind of a bigger fish in a small pond. So I got amazing assignments. Like I got an assignment to interview Paul McCartney when he came through town about his children's book for The Independent, a UK publication. I got work for The Economist, a British publication. Because I was sort of a, it was a smaller pool, I was able to get amazing work. I started working for a magazine in Toronto called Toronto Life Magazine, kind of like the New York Mag of Toronto. And I also got a job uh, for the Globe and Mail, which is a big newspaper there, after I wrote a massive piece for them that caused a shitstorm. I can say that, right? (laughs) It was about teenage girls and oral sex, actually. It was about the sort of quote unquote trend towards, um, I feel so dated now. It's so funny that we, that I wrote about this, but at the time it was like this definition that sex, oral sex wasn't sex and, and oh my gosh, teenage girls are really engaging in this. And and sort of changing sexual mores. And I, the piece was written from a very non-judgmental point of view. I just interviewed a lot of girls and I presented, you know, what was going on um, in junior highs and high schools around the country. And just that fact really caused a lot of, uh, it caused a big, you know, shitstorm uh, in the publishing community. And, you know, to their credit, the Globe and Mail hired me to be on staff. Um, and so I was really in traditional magazines and newspapers. I was writing, I was reporting. I loved it. I had a column in Toronto Life where I would kind of go and sort of like a talk of the town style, um, write about the city. And the whole time I still wanted to be in New York and it just was not happening. And eventually I left magazines because I was kind of like, I don't, this isn't, this is great, but like, I want to try something new. I went to MTV, which was at the time had just come to Toronto. And uh, I went, I was a producer for about a year. And I took a vacation to LA just for fun. And while I was there, I had an informational interview at Los Angeles Magazine, just because someone, I knew someone who knew somebody. And they didn't have a job, but I sent about 25 ideas for magazine features, basically, or small features the next day. And I did it because I just was like, listen, just so you know how I think, this is a this is an example. And I didn't really hear back from them. And then about six months or eight months later, turns out there was a job there. Did I want to pursue it? And immediately I said no, because I already had this MTV thing. I really didn't. And it was actually my mom who called me and was like, what the hell are you doing? You've always wanted to be in the States. Do it, do it, do it. I was like, oh, yeah. So I applied and eventually they did a visa for me 
and I came here. And that was 12 years ago. I came to Los Angeles Magazine. That only tells you part of the story. I know this is very long-winded, but this basically gets you to coming to L.A. That was 2007. We all know what happened in 2008 recession hit, you know, a ton of layoffs. I luckily was spared. Um, but I saw this sort of titanic moment happening with um, with publishing. And I honestly got scared. It really changed my paradigm of like what I wanted to do when I grew up. Because essentially, I saw this thing happening that the whole industry was changing. And suddenly, I did not want my boss's job. And I looked around and I didn't know where I wanted to work. And I started thinking about it. Um, really deeply. And an opportunity came up at the Huffington Post, which at the time was entertainment and politics, really focused on that. But it was a pretty hot growing company. And there was an opportunity that came up to run HuffPost Divorce, which was not a section yet. HuffPost Divorce did not exist. It was an idea that Nora Ephron had come up with. Nora and Ariana, I think they were like hanging in the Hamptons one summer, right? This is like classic sort of like late 2000s. And um, they came up with this idea. It was Nora's idea. She was going to be, you know, the editor at large. So my feeling was I will do anything that she is behind. I will work for her. I will go to the ends of the earth for her. She's such a hero. And I did. Um, she hired me to run HuffPost Divorce, having never been divorced. You know, I sort of framed it as I'm a child of divorce. There's a lot of divorce in my family. And I come from that and I get it. Um, and luckily, she got on board with that. So HuffPost was a few years. I launched HuffPost Divorce. I launched HuffPost Weddings, which like I was single at the time. That's an amazing romantic comedy waiting to happen. Uh, then I launched a section devoted to Oprah, HuffPost Own, which was kind of like repackaged Oprah content. And then again, that started to shift everything. The whole industry again was changing. And I saw sort of like, wow, social is where it's at now. And I saw a really cool opportunity actually at Airbnb, which to me at the time, I was kind of like, wait, what is this? It was called Head of Storytelling at Airbnb. Now, that is a very common title now. At the time, it was like, oh, my God, Silicon Valley, like Head of Storytelling. They have like, too much money. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but of course, I was very curious and interested in what that was. So I, I got in touch with my friend uh, at Facebook and I said, hey, you're up in, in the Valley. You know, Do you know anyone at Airbnb? And she said, no, I don't, but we're hiring. We're building our team. Do you want to talk to my boss? And I was on the phone with him in the next like hour. I was flown up there uh, for a massively intense series of interviews, uh, you know, in various rooms on Facebook campus. And about a month later, I had an offer. And that's how I got to Facebook. It really was a question of timing. They were building out this partnerships team. So what that means for people who don't know is um, essentially being a point of contact within the company for publishers and people who want to build their brands on the on the platform. At the time, they just bought Instagram, so on Instagram and Facebook. And I got to work across both platforms. This was the only team within the company, really, that is not siloed, that does not just get to work on Instagram or Facebook. So I got to say, you know, hey, it was sort of like, take your pick. I, you've been hired to run lifestyle partnerships. What does that mean? That means anything you wanted to. And it was this incredible moment where I got to jump in and really own that. And so what do what did those partnerships look like? Mm -hmm. Who did you work with? How did you make those happen? Yeah. So for 
because lifestyle is such a broad category, and honestly, so many people in tech, at least at the time, did not know what that meant. They're just like, oh, yeah, it's everything that's not music or sports or, you know, traditional entertainment. So I really had to go in and define that. And for me, at the time, I saw this really big opportunity in fashion. Now, I don't come from a fashion background. I don't I, I like to shop, but I don't have a particular, like, obsessive interest. What I was interested in was that I saw this platform, Instagram, really disrupting, on the verge of disrupting this entire industry, the fashion industry. And that was fascinating to me. Like, what? This tech platform is going to disrupt the entire industry? That is so cool and I want to be involved. But while there was a ton of organic, you know, um, posting in the fashion world, whether it was, you know, Metball or Fashion Week, whatever, Instagram had no presence there. Um, there was no relationships there at the time. And that was just because it wasn't a priority. I decided to change that. And I said, you know, I think Instagram can be the top platform for fashion. How do we make this happen? And essentially just went and like parked myself in New York. I was on a plane about 17 times that year uh, because the whole world is over there. Um, and I'm based in L.A. It was literally just going and doing cold meetings with Vogue, going and doing cold meet cold meetings with the CFDA, Council of Fashion Designers of America, you know, going and having a presence on the floor at Fashion Week in the form of an installation. You know, when I think of what we actually did, it was everything from, you know, getting in the room at Vogue and sitting down with the right editors and saying, you know, how do we get Anna Wintour to post? She hadn't been on Instagram at the time at all. Um, as herself on the Vogue account. You know, they wanted to do something around the September issue. We said, you know, why don't you put her on reading the September issue of Vogue and call it a Vogue-stagram? Call, you know, show us your Vogue-stagram and do it as a call to action. So it was taking a little bit of like, hey, you want to do this? Let's help you frame it as a really like viral hopefully viral campaign. And then it's, you know, and then we'll see what happens. And they did it. Every news outlet picked it up. We saw like, you know, from the best speeds of the world to the refineries, like it was insane. It was her first time on Instagram. So it was it was her holding the magazine with her, you know, patented glasses. And it was just so iconic. And I think for a strategy, you could say that was like the first really big moment for fashion on Instagram, because it really we got Anna to bless the platform, really. And once Anna blessed it, it really was just like all bets are off. I mean, yeah, the avalanche happened. The doors flung open. Yes. So in terms of the structure of the partnerships, was it just like, hey, we want you to do this. Let's do this. Or was it did someone get paid? OK, so the way it works, it really varies. So with and this is like, you know, how the sausage is made stuff. I love it. I, love, um, I, love it. <laughs> I know. So with something like that, there's no payment at all. It literally is just going in, helping them sort of um, shape an idea and in some cases help promote it. Typically, what Instagram did at the time was literally just help promote. There was no payment. In some very, very rare cases, such as a partnership with, you know, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week, which was, you know, obviously much more traditional corporate, we would have paid to be, you know, have an installation on the floor at Fashion Week with a massive screen and that type of thing. We would have paid for the real estate, just like any traditional you know, we, we cover costs, cover expenses with something that I'm most proud of is probably the the CFDA partnership around uh, an award that actually just took to them. I said, you know, can we do something called the Fashion Instagrammer of the Year Award? And after much back and forth and me being just incredibly persistent, they did it. So what that meant is they actually created an award as part of their traditional, you know, 
I call it the Oscars of the fashion world, the award show every year. They they call it the you know fashion Instagrammer of the year. Now that's if that's not a blessing from the most incredible organization, I don't know what is. So. Yeah, that was an example of kind of a very intense partnership, which involved us, you know, uh, covering costs for the website and whatnot. But it wasn't this stuff typically didn't cost a lot of money. It was much more about creativity. It was about the right people. It was right about the right timing and about amplifying it in the right way. So you're a marketer. I'm a marketer. You're a marketer. One hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. It takes the the. I guess balls, boobs, I don't know, but to walk in a room. Ovaries. Yeah, and say like, hey, mm-hmm. you know, I'm inventing something. A hundred percent. Here's yep. something that's never been done before. It's my idea. Everything's writing on the fact that it's not like some marketing brief that a bunch of, totally. you know, marketing people and creatives handed you that they spent a ton of time on. It's like, hey, here's this idea. I think this could go viral. And you, ha- you understand probably through your work as an editor yes. uh, how – how word travels, 100%. right? Like what gets picked yep. up, you know, what's worth covering. If you worked for the Globe and Mail, you definitely know what kind of things catch fire. 100%. And being able to reverse engineer that for partners. Yeah. The is- way I always think about it is headline first. And even today with the with the with the partners and the sorry, the clients that I work with now, um, it's always headline first. What's the headline you want, like in a perfect world? And that and then like let's work let's work backwards and get that. And you're not always gonna get it. But if you can have that, why not? And that's always how I do it. We'll get back to Sarah in just a minute, but first, here's a little bit about Prudential. Do you stress about your finances? New data found that 60% of employees bring their financial stress into the workplace. If anything, we could all use a little less stress at work. So we've partnered with Prudential to deliver smart tips for your financial wellness so you can start practicing today. Wondering where to start? Ask yourself, do I know where I stand financially? If not, head to prudential.com slash state of us to take their financial wellness assessment and check in on your preparedness for the future. There, you'll also find some pointers on how to get on track and get closer to those goals of yours. We have so much more with Sarah coming up, but first I want to talk about our favorites, ShipStation. We have so many e-commerce entrepreneurs listening to Girl Boss Radio who are shipping packages probably right now while they're listening to Girl Boss Radio. And they're using ShipStation because ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. So whether you're using your own website, Shopify, Squarespace, Etsy, or over 75 other popular selling channels, you can use ShipStation to bring all your orders into one simple interface. And the holidays are almost here, which means crunch season. I did that for 10 years. It's real hard and people care a lot about getting their orders before the holidays hit. And so ShipStation, if you don't know, is a fast and easy way to manage and ship your orders all from one place, from any device. You can create shipping labels for all the top carriers, including UPS, FedEx, and USPS. We use ShipStation here at Girlboss for all of our shipping needs, and it's super simple. We love it. With ShipStation, we ship more in less time with the best rates available. And right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use my promo code GIRLBOSS. Don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com. And before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's ShipStation.com. Enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Now let's get back to our chat with Sarah Wilson. And so, okay, so I want to talk just a little bit about digital publishing because we've all watched 
um, without naming names, these giant digital publishers, you know, stumble, raise mm-hmm. a ton of money, stumble, have a hard time probably exiting their businesses, laying people off and looking to diversify revenue. And there's a lot of talk about diversifying revenue, yeah. um, which for those listening just means making money from more than one yeah. place. Yeah, so it's not just advertising Not anymore. just selling ads. Yes. And so we've seen actually yesterday saw... Uh, the woman who's the GM at BuzzFeed mm-hmm. uh, for Tasty present what they're doing with Tasty, which is really interesting. But why do you think it's important? I mean, obviously, because Facebook and Google are eating all of the ad revenue. But how can brands or publishers think about diversifying their revenue streams? And where do you see people beginning to monetize outside of advertising? Yeah. So I think you make a really good point. I mean, everybody was, remember the pivot to video and everyone was sort of obsessed with that. That's because the platforms, Facebook really demanded that. And that is still the case to a large extent. I mean, we we joke about this sort of pivot to video has been like a, a punchline, but in fact, video, those platforms still are very much video platforms. Um, and so the video publishers are um, winning generally. That's a very general statement. But overall, like, I think what a lot of those content businesses that did that did not realize maybe is that content's really expensive to produce. And I think when you get over leveraged, it's scary. I mean, it's expensive to hire those teams. It's expensive to do all of that um, work. And even a lot of the influencers who come to me who want to build their own lifestyle brands, let's say, I'm very like eyes wide open about it. I'm like, okay, well, what do you, you know what the investment is? Do you know like what are, how many people are you planning to hire? Like, what are you trying to budget? So yes, to your point, I really do think it's all about, you know, finding those other revenue streams. Now, I don't know that we've found like, how do we replace the money? <laughs> like, no, you're, you're shaking your head because it's. It, I don't know that we've really found that solution. And that's what this, quote, diversified sort of model is all about, is really trying to, like, lean into other revenue streams. But in terms of what I see working, I see, honestly, it all starts with a very devoted community, a very devoted following. And then you can kind of build anything you want. So I look at, you know, a company like, you're familiar with Crunchyroll, Mm-hmm. Um, right. So you have this like devoted community who will buy and watch and do based on their devotion. And so to me, and that's this is how I kind of approach it. It's like you kind of have to go into building your brand with, all right, well, what are my core people? How am I going to build stuff, whether it's like experiences, products, moments, content for them? And then that will ideally expand. Because if you kind of go and try to, what I see a lot of companies do is try to reverse engineer that, try to go back and like find your community. It can be really, really challenging, if not impossible. And so what have I seen work? Different things for different people, products for one, you know, um, experiences for another. But it really depends on like, well, what does your community respond to? 